Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, where we explore how to make space for everyone in the yoga community. This podcast is brought to you by the Accessible Yoga Association, a nonprofit organization focused on accessibility and equity in yoga. Hi, I'm your host, Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him, and I serve as the director of Accessible Yoga. And I'm your co-host, Amber Carnes. My pronouns are she and her, and I serve as president of the Accessible Yoga Board of Directors. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Accessible Yoga Podcast. Uh, I'm Jeevana. My pronouns are he and him. I'm so happy to be here today with my special guest, Carrie Kelly. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Jeevana. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Glad to thank be here. You. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that uh, we get to talk about your work and your new book, which I'm really excited about. So your new book is called American Detox, The Myth of Wellness and How We Can Truly Heal, which is very exciting. Comes out what day? Is it? Uh, June 7th, but it's pre-order now. Okay. And um, let's talk about you a little bit. So Carrie Kelly is an activist, wellness disruptor, and the high-profile, well-connected founder of Citizen Well. That sounds nice. <laughs> is, um, that it, is that what it says? That's what it says in your bio. But I want to say that you were the executive director of Off the Mat Into the World, which is an amazing org that is kind of dissolved now. We should maybe talk about that too. Yeah. And, and generally, just an amazing activist and um, I would say uplifter of the work. Like I see the way you uplift voices in the community, which I really appreciate. And I feel like, you know, very connected with you in that way. And I've just loved getting to know you over the years and always look forward to these conversations. I, well, anything else I should say about you, about your bio, anything <laughs> I, you want to share? Bios are so funny. Yeah. You know, they're, first of all, I'm, is that the bio that's in the press release? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, I did not, I did not write that about myself, <laughs> which know. is so funny. Um, I'm always weirded out by hearing my bio read back to me. Cause you're like, well, those are like the things I do or maybe like the role I play, but yeah, I don't know what I want to say about myself. I feel like, um, I say a lot of it in this book. I say a lot, like I, I yeah. expose a lot of myself in this book and, and how I became who I am and what inspires me and what fucking pisses me off. Am I allowed to curse? Of course, all you want. Okay. <laughs> so I, that's what I like about the book. You know, I've, um, I just got it a couple of days ago and I've kind of did a quick review, but I just yeah. want to say what I, what, what st stood out for me about it is your personal story and mm. also something you said, it, it was in the introduction about your willingness to be wrong and to make mistakes and to talk about that. I just think that's really, really important because generally speaking, I just want to say like as a writer, it's really hard to find that voice that feels authentic and mm. not, not overly self-critical, but also not like self-important. So, mm -hmm. Well, especially, wonder, right, yeah. given our social location, it's like, how do you write a book and not center yeah. yourself, right? And like be a part of the practice of decentering and decentering whiteness and decentering people with lots of proximity to power and privilege. So right. I feel you. I feel like you and I have talked a lot about this actually in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I grappled with that question like for the three years it took me. I think you wrote like two books in the time that I took <laughs> to write this book, um, <laughs> just for the record. So I grappled with that a lot. You know, what is what is um, what is for me to write? What is appropriate for me to write? Mm -hmm. What is the what is the right role? 
um, what is my right role and responsibility in, in this work? Um, and then, and then how do I write in a way that's really responsible, that attributes, um, that acknowledges, you know, who and how I learned about things and which is endless, right? Like there's so much attribution in this book. It's like one big end note, I feel like. Um, (laughs) but, but one of the things I joke about as I, as I reflect on, on this book is that, you know, there's like 96,000 opportunities to make a mistake in this book. You know, it's 96,000 words enshrined Mm. in this book forever. And so, you know, there's a part of me that's like terrified that I made a mistake, right? Yeah. Um, there's a part of me that knows that I most definitely did. You know, I'm a, I'm a student of this work and I'm continuing to learn and I learn by making mistakes. Um, and there's also a part of me that, and, and Rev Angel really like pushed me on this, that is like, mm-hmm. I have to take responsibility for like what I'm doing and what I'm here to do and what my role is. And so I, so yeah. I you know, I, at the end of the day, I, I took the risk, right? Because I feel mm-hmm. like the stakes are that high. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I saw in there. And I feel like that willingness to speak out and speak up is so much you for me. Like, that's what I feel when I, when I talk to you and when I, when I <laughs> see your part. work, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> the messy part is also the, um, the humanity, the humility mm-hmm. and like the willingness to be in a relationship and to, um, be wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate that. And I oh agree. I mean, writing, writing a book is scary in that way oh, that you want it to be perfect it's like guts way out there and yeah it's funny because like when I with the, the first interview that I did someone showed up with my with the book like super posted it like post it sticking out in every direction and yeah. I had this like I flinched because I was like oh shit you really read it like you read the deep stuff <laughs> I was like I damn it <laughs> you know and I so know. You know, and I'm, <laughs> I, I can't even remember sometimes what I wrote, right? Because I, you know, yep. I've been writing it for so long. And anyway, so yes and, to all of that. So much vulnerability and also like a lot of discovery and and clarity too that came through all of the reckoning and grappling I had to do while I wrote this book. I, yeah, I totally get that. It's, it's interesting when someone's really read it, you can feel it. Um, and I appreciate that for myself. I wish that I was there with you, but I have a few important notes yeah. for you. But one thing you also before, know me, you know me well enough <laughs> to know me. what's in this book, you know, but I also want to say, how did you figure out the voice of the book? Because I just want to say like, as a writer, it's something that I think people don't realize. Some people don't realize who aren't writers. It's just like, there's so many ways in, <clears throat> you know, there's so many ways to have a conversation in a book. And I think so often we position ourselves as the expert and use a voice that's very authoritarian in a book just by using um, like third person language like we. And I notice you, you go there occasionally, but it's really very much in the first person, like I, I, I. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's you, but I wonder if you were consciously doing that, if you thought about. I mean, I, I was hyper conscious of like, I can only write about my experience, um, right. Like I can only write from my location and my lived experience. And that felt like the most authentic and responsible thing to do. And so, um, so yeah, so I leaned really hard and that by the way, was really challenging for me. I want to, you know, like I preach a lot and I just wanted to be a preacher for this whole book and be like, y'all get your shit together. Let's go. You know, um, And, but I really, um, like, I really wanted to also walk the talk of the practice that I was putting forth. And so that, (laughs) that forced me, right. To like, really, 
um, you know, be in deep inquiry around like, you know, what is my place in this? What is my part in this mess? And then what is my lived experience and, and what am I learning from that? So that, that felt super, that felt super important that, um, not just like doing that, but the, the process that it took actually to get there was mm-hmm. really, really critical for me. And, you know, there are parts of the book where there's a lot of analysis in the book. I'm sure you saw that. And so there are parts too, where I'm like speaking to the inequity, where I'm speaking to the gaps and the injustice and wellness. And that was also hard for me. Like, how do I talk about other people's experience? Not, you know, so I just like, and I often defaulted to other people's voices and pointed to other people's work, but finding that line was, I thought really, it was really tricky. Um, and, um, and look, I don't, I don't, you've, you've written a bunch of books. So I just want to say like, you're way ahead of me. I don't feel, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like a writer. I feel a little bit more like a weaver. Like I've learned so much from so many people. Like they're just like, you know, I've just been blessed by having so many teachers and so many mentors and, and so many experiences that have shaped what I know and who I've become. And this book is the product of that. Right. But I just want to say you are a writer now. Apparently I wrote a thing, but, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, like one of the, like my, I know people who can like write poetry and and prose and, and I, and I feel, you know, more like a weaver of ideas, a connector of dots, a synthesizer of like really complex concepts, you know, and that's what I, (laughs) I think you're actually describing a good writer. Okay. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Because honestly, the, the, the good writer is a person who's the the words actually fall away Mm -hmm. and the, the concept comes through and the Mm. communication happens. It's communication. So, Mm. you know, I Mm. think what you're describing is actually the goal here. So I feel like you've succeeded, but I mean, I, I do feel like you've succeeded and just in, you know, in all the ways you described, first of all, sharing your story, which I want to talk about a bit, and then yeah. also sharing voices, like the last section where you, yes. you basically interview other people and talk about, give them a voice. Like you literally have people speaking in the last section of the book instead of yourself, which I thought was really great. And I also, in my book, I try to do the same. Like mm-hmm. I just I know. feel like I can't help but have other voices there. And I love that you did that. But I wanted to kind of go to the beginning of the story yeah. where you share personally about yourself, yeah. um, about 9-11, and you really like, it's very dramatic the way you shared that. And like, I mean, you really set the scene, I think, for your own personal challenges, but also kind of a cultural shift, um, like illness in a way. It's like the illness yeah. and how, yeah. Can you talk about that? Like a little yeah. bit about your... Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So like the book begins on 9-11, 2001. A lot of people know that about me. Um, when, you know, when I lost my stepfather who was a fireman at ladder 15, which was right around the corner from the world trade center, um, and was one of the first people to respond. Um, and, um, and I wrote about, um, the experience it was like, I tried to like write about the exact moment when I was disrupted. You know what I mean? Like when my whole world and worldview broke down and it was like inside that story. Um, and that was, it was like really, I want to say it was like real healing for me to write that actually. Um, Mm. and every time I read it, I like, I like, I feel it deep in my bones. Um, and before that moment I had spent 25 years right on this, um, 
Mm. predetermined, you know, white suburban, able-bodied capitalist path where I was sort of trained to be like the good student and the good athlete and the good girl, the good Catholic girl, the overachiever, the perfectionist, and then the like climb the ladder, be popular, you know, be successful, um, you know, compare and, you know, compete. Like that was Mm. like, I was very committed to that path, you know, and everything around me was like, yeah, keep going. Good job, Carrie, you know? And so 9-11 really like disrupted that trajectory for me and, and really made me question everything. I mean, I think sometimes we think that we have like disruptions and tragedies and we come out of it like right away with like all these light bulbs. And that was not it for me. Like this book is sort of like the 21 years it took me (laughs) to like understand anything, you know, but what Mm. it, what it did do is it shook the tree. Mm. It shook the tree. And and I, I started to question everything I had learned, everything I had taught, everything I thought I knew about what Mm. it was to be, you know, quote unquote normal or successful or, you know, Healthy, um, safe, or, healthy, or, well, well, right. Yeah. And so like, that was a, that was like the beginning of the unraveling for me, actually. Like that was, you know, it wasn't a like, now I know it was like, actually I fell apart after that. And, um, and that very messy, you know, kind of falling apart journey is what led me to healing. Mm-hmm. And to wellness and to yoga and to meditation. And so that, you know, that was the real um, start for me. Um, and there's there's so much more, right, about um, what 9-11, not, o- not only like the way in, what it did for me, the way in which it disrupted my life, but the, traje- the trajectory it put our country on right. is really significant. And, and, you know, and that that was an unfolding in and of itself for me, you know, like understanding the role of 9-11, you know, in um, justifying um, this horrific forever war that killed, you know, over a million people. So, um, so, you know, I, I, it's like, this book is sort of like a chronicle of like 21 years of reckoning with that and and also like desperately yearning to heal. Mm -hmm. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, it just, I think it gives me hope. And I think hopefully for anyone listening that that's those kinds of tragedies and challenges are really a source for healing. Yeah. I mean, that's really the, it's, it's kind of a paradox or something, but it's yeah. like, that's where the healing occurs. And it's hard to, it's hard to say that in the midst of it, when someone's suffering, you don't want to be like, Oh, that's good. You know, yeah. You'll look find, on the bright side. Yeah. yeah no, no, that's bullshit. But, I mean, but there is something, you know, the ability to look back in this way. And I feel like I imagine I can feel it actually in the book, like this, this is healing, like the way you have transmuted that into a message that you're sharing with the world feels really healing to me. Oh yeah. And, and it's funny just to like, I love what you said about the paradox of those moments because they suck. Yeah. Right. And you wouldn't wish them on anyone. And I, and I have gratitude, right. For the way in which, um, it, it woke me up you know? Um, but I tell two different perspectives on the aftermath of tragedies. And one is from the standpoint of Rebecca Solnit, who wrote an amazing book called, um, uh, paradise built in hell, which Mm. talks, she like chronicle, like she, she, she studies, um, all of these different tragedies, whether it's uh, Katrina, nine 11, the earthquake of, uh, I think 1906 in San Francisco and the ways in which, 
humans and people and communities like rose to the occasion, like really, Mm -hmm. really showed up as their best selves, like Mm -hmm. in the most vulnerable moment, right? Like just like, like fully embodied compassion and a a reaching out and a seeing one another in a different way. Um, And, and I remember that after 9-11, like I remember Mm -hmm. there was this like pocket of time in the like couple days after 9-11 that was like, it was exceptional. Like it was like, yeah. it was, it sucked. And there was also something incredibly beautiful. And yeah. there's another perspective I tell in the book um, that came from a book called The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein that talks about how in the aftermath of tragedy, things like Katrina or 9-11 or, you know, what at war often, um, um, hurricanes, earthquakes, you know, any, anything that, that sort of shatters the norm that people in power, right? Um, white capitalist people in power come in and take advantage of our vulnerability to drive profit. So anyway, so it's like, there's, so it's like that, that's the paradox, right? There are these two things, right? And, And I, and I really had to learn how to, I had to learn how to hold that in this, you know, conversation. Yeah. I mean, I can see that in COVID too. You know, I can see how both things are happening. Oh, yeah. Right. That's a great example, right? Of like, like, you know, people really mobilizing around mutual aid and, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, and billionaires getting like absurdly and disgustingly wealthy at the expense of everyone else. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you about wellness in particular. So that's how you start off talking about, um, you know, kind of the myth of wellness and you'd call it, uh, you're talking about the well-being gap, which I really liked that term. I just wanted to talk about that because I feel like connecting it back to yoga, you know, it's interesting to me also that the term wellness and how, first of all, how distasteful it is to me. Like I really, like even just that word, I find really (laughs) hard to swallow. Oh, also, yeah, you're differentiated between well-being and wellness. (laughs) I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I had to like get really clear about what I meant. Like, you know, because yeah. I mean, so much of what I write about is the way in which wellness has been, you know, and 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 all the the practices and rituals and medicine, right? That that wellness has, you know, come out of, right? That's yeah. really what we're talking about. Yoga, meditation, um, spiritual practice, um, um, and how it's been co-opted and commercialized and commodified and, you know, colonized. Right. So it's, it was really important for me to be like, what do I mean when I say wellness and well-being? And, you know, um, well, I understand well-being is like the state of being well. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and wellness is like the active pursuit of it. It was actually defined, um, in, I think the 19, I think it's in the book somewhere, but in the 1960s, it was, it was defined as like, uh, like th- this sort of like, it's not passive, right? It's like an active pursuit of wanting to be well, right? right. Um, and so I had to get clear about like what it was that I was saying when I was saying these things. Um, but, you know, the the irony of, of <laughs> my experience in writing this book and my experience with wellness is that on one hand, I deeply yearn to be well, right? As mm-hmm. do I think all of us. So like, I just want to name that, like, this is a, this is a fierce critique <laughs> mm-hmm. of the industry of wellness um, um, and the, and the dominant culture of wellness. And, and yet I'm also holding this, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm holding a, um, a question, right. Um, 
a, mm. a hope that, right, there's a way for us to actually create the conditions where people can thrive, right? Like I want, I want that for myself. I want that for you. I want that for all people. And the reality is in the current, in the current circumstances and the context that we live in right now, um, um, only some people get to be well, right? And and mm-hmm. the way that I define the well-being gap is the unequal conditions that that determines who gets to be well and who doesn't. And it's not just access to yoga classes, right? Mm-hmm. Or the price of a meditation training, or you know the really expensive, you know, juice fast at you know goop. It's it's also like the fact that like our um minimum wage is $7.25 still, you know, after right. 25 years. Um and that so many people are houseless and that almost half of our children are living in poverty and that white supremacy continues to reign and take lives and that we continue to lock people up, you know, and incarcerate them in medical institutions and in prisons. And so right like it, it, I really just um I try to think about well-being in a more holistic sense, right? And this is mm-hmm. why I'm always like, we have to get, pol- we have to politicize wellness, right? Because it's not enough to democratize the wellness services when mm. the structures, the systems, and the conditions that we exist in are so unhealthy and unequal. And so, um, and and you know, I often would. You know, what, the first thing that I started to do when I like was leaning into this question of like, what does it mean for all of us to be well? As I, um, I worked on a campaign called Fight for Fifteen with um, uh, um, a labor union called SEIU. It was in New York, and we were fighting mm-hmm. to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, right. which we eventually did. Um, and I was a part of like a solidarity coalition, one of like many many organizations that were like pooling our resources and our voices and our power, right, to really like push this really fundamental and kind of like human right to like get fair pay. And in working, you know, side by side with labor organizers and fast food workers, you know, it was so clear to me that like they didn't need a meditation. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea that we should just like teach, you know, people... Uh-huh. That this, I, I'm using like air quotes because I fucking hate when we talk about people like this, but like the less privileged or the, you know, the under blah, 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 like, which is just such, you know, hierarchical bullshit. But like the mm. idea that we would like assume that anyone needs meditation or a yoga class, right, as a solution to deep mm-hmm. systemic problems is like, mm-hmm. is, is not just like insulting, it's harmful. And mm-hmm. so anyway, so that's when I started to like actually like, um, stretch my idea of like what wellness looks like, right? Wellness as an active pursuit, right? Of democratizing wellness or well-being in all of the ways, right? In housing, in um, fair pay, um, in voting rights, um, in, um, you know, anti-racism work and so on and so forth. But, but I feel like, so, I mean, that was very powerful, but I feel like you kind of, you made a certain leap there that I just want you to expand on where, mm-hmm. because I think that um, not everyone would agree that you can't have wellness individually if there isn't wellness in the community. But I feel like that's what you're saying, that, that you're saying it's not possible. Yeah, that's my theory, right? That there yeah. can be, there can't be wellness for some. There can't, there is no well, well-being for me, right? When so many people are suffering. And, you know, I kind of feel like if people just look around, they see evidence of that everywhere. Look at the global pandemics, right? You know, a million people have died at this point mm-hmm. in the United States, right? So this, this interdependent virus that is impacting everyone and disproportionately so, I want to say that, right? 
mm-hmm. um, uh, climate change, right? Like all, like th- all of the accelerating crises that we are are facing only prove our interdependence, only prove that there can't be, you know, like an, like an individualized, like hoarding of wellness for, for, for themselves. Right. Because we're staring down really dark times at this point. Well, I, I I think it's important just because I I would just say yoga and yoga too, like specifically, I would just say like, you know, that in the yoga teachings, there's this focus on individual um, enlightenment. Yeah that I have always questioned. And I think you're saying the exact same thing. How, how is it possible, right? How is it possible for an individual to be enlightened if the community is not, if the community is struggling or suffering in any way? Yeah. People next yeah. door to you are dying and you yeah. know, you just had a like blissed out experience on your mat. Like if you don't feel like deep dissonance about that, like something is not quite right with your practice. Right. And I want to say that, like, I know that people get great benefits from the practice, right? Like mm-hmm. all of us yeah. in different ways. And so I don't want to denote that. I just don't think it's the whole experience, right? I don't think it's the, 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 the entirety of what it means to be well. And so, um, the, the self-care work is important right? Um, um, personal responsibility does in fact matter. Like take responsibility for your shit. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, take care of yourself. Like all of that is a part yeah. of it, but it's not, it's not the end of the story. And I think because we've been indoctrinated into a culture of toxic individualism in this country, right? Um, and this idea of like the self-made man and self-sufficiency and go it alone, you know, um, ideology, that wellness is just more of that. It's just more of right. the same. And it basically is is selling us this lie that we can be perfect. We can be superhuman. We can be immunoresilient. We can be all these bullshit things all by ourselves when we know just by looking around, just by reading the news, right? Just by mm. paying attention that that is in fact not true. We are right. all human. We are all vulnerable. We are all connected. And and we're all suffering in different ways from these fucked up systems we're a part of. Right. And I, I think you really break that down um, in this book. I mean, I feel like that's what you do here. You, like, I love this part, um, seeking healing. It feels very close to me personally, you mm-hmm. know, the question of healing and um, health and healthism. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if you could talk about that, like the idea of, of cure and um, let's see, I had a quote from you. You talk about, you know, we have this whole idea of like um, individual, the individual role, um, you know, first of making a pathologizing illness and then curing it. And that's like, the, it encompasses so Vicious much cycle. Time attention. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk about that. Maybe you can Yeah. Just... Well, and I, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up and I've learned so much from you on this subject too, mm-hmm. around, you know, around, you know, um, access and accessibility and how important that is. And I want to say that like the teachers in this particular chapter, I feel like pushed me the hardest people mm-hmm. like Eli Claire and Mia Mingus and yeah. Leah Lakshmi and, um, um, And not just like on an analytical level of like understanding. I was like in this chapter, I was really trying to understand like, what does it mean to heal and what does it mean to be healthy? Right. Um, and, and, and I came into this 
part of my life, right? From a mm-hmm. place of like, I wanted to be fixed. I didn't even want to heal. What I really wanted was to be fixed, right? Yeah. I wanted to be cured, right? And the medical industrial complex was like right there ready for me. They were like, we got you, you know, we'll diagnose you. We'll pathology, yeah. you know, here's, you know, here's some pharmaceuticals or here, you know, here's all these solutions, right? Um, when in fact, um, you know, what was happening for me was, was much deeper. And so, um, through that process, I learned a lot about Mm -hmm. the difference between, um, fixing and healing. Right. Um, and the difference between, you know, um, this sort of idea of like destination and cure, right. And, and which like feeds into the idea that like some of us are, are like whole and normal and some of us are broken, Mm-hmm. and abnormal right and and like where did we learn that from and how yeah. is that actually fixated right in our in the systems that are designed to make us healthier right um are actually built on those ideas and so that was so like digging into the history of that yeah. of normativity of eugenics um of of the ideology of cure um Health, healthism i mean i think healthism is like so pervasive people don't even know what they don't we don't even see it in the yoga world we don't That's even right. see. Well, wellness, that. especially, right, which shames people. Like, so healthism is this idea that it's like a moral imperative for people to be healthy. And if you're not, something's wrong with you, right? So it feeds into that ideology of individualism that says, if you're sick, it's your fault. Do something mm-hmm. different, right? Right. Um, and, um, and then it more. uplifts. Practice yeah, and, more. <laughs> a practice, right. Meditate more, right. Or like take different supplements or, you know, like put your leg behind your head, like this ridiculous you know, these ridiculous, again, like individual solutions to like deep, you know, systemic problems. Um, and, and, you know, I had my own experience of disability, you know, which I really had to reckon with while I was writing this chapter, because at first I didn't include it in this chapter because, you know, I'm, I, I have phases of, of, um, neuropathy where I lose, you know, the use of the function of my arm because I broke my back in two places in an accident, you know, many years ago. And, but often I'm abled, I'm able-bodied. I'm, you know what I mean? And so I was like, you know what? I'm not sick enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not, and I was writing this when I was in like chronic pain too, which is so Mm. weird. And I was like, but you know what? I'm just like, I'm not in pain enough or I'm not um, compromised enough to claim that for myself. And so I'm going to like duck it. And I had, you know, some amazing teachers in my life um, from the disability community who were like, actually no, Carrie, you actually need to claim that, right? Mm-hmm. Because like we all have variations and we all have different abilities and actually like we need to normalize that and not keep defaulting to this like myth that right. everyone is, you know, like nor- normative, you know, um, neurotypical, able-bodied, yeah. like we all are somewhere on the spectrum and like you need to actually yeah. own that for yourself and claim that and talk about the ways in which that's impacted your life. And so I did that, right? But that was like one of those moments for me where I really had to like break through this yeah. conditioning, you know what I mean? That I'm like, um, this conditioning toward like fixing myself and being normal and and also like the way that capitalism was like, pull your shit together you know, like get healed up, get healed, right. Fix your back and get back into the world in a so-called normal or productive way. Um, and so anyway, so I fell right into that trap, you know, for like literally seven years after my accident, um, and, and my pain was nonstop and writing this book really helped me reckon with that. 
Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that because I feel like I feel the same way. Like I have, I shared about my anxiety disorder in my mm -hmm. book and it was like very hard for me, you know, because it's like, I'd never, I don't identify as a person with a disability publicly. Like, I feel like it's not bad enough. Mm -hmm. um, exactly like you described, but I mean, I have good and bad days, you know what I mean? And so that's, that's what it's about. It's about just being human and realizing we have, we all have that. There are so many amazing, I, can I add one this, thing? this section is amazing. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say that I had, I had some amazing editors, um, in this book, Laura Sharkey is one of them. Alison Johnston mm -hmm. is another, and they, I just want to name how much they taught me, right? I had yeah. a lot of people editing this book and like being, and showing me what I couldn't see, right. Given my, my lived experience. And, and they were really, really amazing teachers for me yeah. in helping me, sort through because so much of what I'm sorting through throughout this whole book is how we've been socialized and yeah. how we've internalized the messages from dominant culture so much so we don't even see them right and so anyway so I just wanted to give a shout out to those to, to Laura and to Allison because um I don't know that I would have seen that were yeah. it not for for their not for their accountability right they're like solidarity and account and holding me to account to like actually asking the hard questions that's awesome I was afraid of editors. I just, <laughs> it's hard. It's terrifying. It's, hard. it's terrifying. I had like eight of them, uh, by the way. Yeah, I was that's like, amazing. It was You're so brave. scary. I only had a few, but yeah. Whew. Okay. So this is a section I wanted to read because there's so much good stuff in this part. And this is like, this part does like really touch my heart about seeking healing. But let's say on page 51, um, you talk about cure, like the concept of cure, which I think is really interesting to me. And again, it just really echoes to me, like what we do in yoga as well, which is like going toward this goal. Like there's this goal of enlightenment or something or like goal orientation. Um, but I love the idea of cure questioning that concept. And you say cure is embedded in Western medical system in a Western medical system designed to disregard self and community term determination <laughs> and foster medical authority over everyone's bodies and minds. Cure upholds the idea that health Quote, health is synonymous with normalcy. We find cure in dieting and weight loss surgery. We find mm -hmm. cure in skin lightening creams marketed to women of color. We find cure in reparative therapy promising to change one's sexual orientation. Cure is not just about medical research. It's an ideology. Cure rise, quote, cure rides on the back of normal and natural, insidious and pervasive. It impacts most of us, says Eli Clare. Author of that Brilliant book, by the way. Yes, I love that book. In response, he says, in response, we need to, we need either, neither a wholehearted acceptance nor an outright rejection of cure, but rather a broad-based grappling. Cure is a contradictory mess. Yeah. I just love that. I like that. So that book like changed my life. I just want to say that Eli Claire, Brilliant Imperfection, and also um, um, Care Work, uh, Dreaming Disability Justice yeah. by Leah Lakshmi, Piepsna, uh, Samar Sinha. Like those books are like... Um, you know, I like keep them by my bedside <laughs> yeah. and, and they've taught, they've, they've stretched me. They've not just taught me, but they've like really stretched, you know, um, my idea, not just of like, of what, it, like how to heal, but also like, um, right. And how not to like seek the destination or seek to be fixed or right. Mm -hmm. Um, but just like this idea of like, 
what it is to be whole as we are, right? And also what it is for all of us to be of different expressions, right? Mm. Um, that are all like human and whole and deserving, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it also made me think a lot about, you know, um, the idea of like, the way in which wellness is often prescribed, like the protocol for wellness mm. that we hear about, like do yoga this way and any other way is not appropriate. Like a, a, a lot of us do that actually, you know, um, um, or like this, if you're not eating, you know, organic or vegan, you know, you know, <laughs> you don't count or like, right. so, and how like, um, wellness and thriving is whatever people decide it is for themselves. Right. Right. And, and that to me feels also like radically disruptive in, um, a dominant culture that has a very particular, that's selling us literally for profit, a very particular kind of protocol, right. Mm -hmm. A very particular kind of image for being well. Yeah. And that um, connect, that's, you connect that to perfectionism. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Uh, what does that mean to you? Perfectionism and the role in that, that what you just described is kind of, um, almost like an ideology that um, we were reaching for this perfect version of ourselves or something. I mean, I would, you know, so I, I call myself a recovering perfectionist because I was like uh -huh. really deeply socialized into perfectionism. You know, mm. perfectionism is often described as an attribute of white supremacy. It's, it's most certainly a function of ableism and of capitalism, right? Which are all in deep collusion mm. with one another. And so I was, I was like trained with the best of them <laughs> to embody this completely unrealistic, um, right? idea that yep. not only that I could be perfect or strive or even be close to perfect, um, but the way in which I imposed that ideal on other people and yeah. how it impacted my relationship and how much I lost. I, I write a lot about the cost of perfectionism in my life. Like it cost me so much. And it wasn't until yeah. I started to reckon with the cost that I started to actually want to divest right from that way of being, because it was so compulsive and, and pervasive in me. But the other thing that I'll just say about perfectionism that feels important is that you know buying into perfectionism is compliance yeah. it's complying right with the myth with this with the lie with a system that's designed to control bodies right and to keep you in line and to make you follow the rules and to make sure you play your part right in upholding white supremacy capitalism patriarchy and all the things and so you know yeah. so so that was really helpful for me to see too that it wasn't it wasn't separate, right, from these really toxic ideologies and and um, unhealthy systems that we're a part of. That actually, yeah. to like participate in perfectionism is to comply with those systems. It's to uphold them. Yeah, can I read? That's what you say here. Um, perfectionism. Oh, this is page ninety-eight. Perfectionism was and is pervasive, reinforced reinforced by a demanding system that kept me in line and addicted to reaching, competing, defending, and hoarding. It was a relentless drive toward a never-ending destination that kept me deeply insecure and dissatisfied. From overworking to anorexia, I tried every which way to get a handle on it, but there was no winning at this game. Yeah, meritocracy and perfectionism was the price of entry into the American dream, a never-ending hustle toward an elusive destination, and it just left me hungry, desperate, and wanting more. Mm, right, so if you want to be a member, you got to play. <laughs> Deep. Yeah, I love that. I just feel like it's something we don't talk about that much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I also want to say that like, 
you know, I have awareness, right, of these internalizations and um and and patterns in my body. And and I still see them emerge all the time, you know, like I'm still yeah. unpacking because it's deep shaping for me at least. And, um, and I, and I think it's also deep shaping because everywhere I look, we're rewarded for perfectionism, like yeah. dominant culture, especially wellness. It's like, get the, you know, have the perfect, butt, you know, like tight, yeah. butt, you know, perfect pose, um, you know, great complexion, you know, all that, you know, and everything we heard obviously yeah. around the pandemic about this kind of superhuman immune system, yeah. right. As if that's like another expression of superiority and supremacy. Yeah. Um, right. so anyway, so it's like, it's, it's no wonder, right. These ideas are so hard to unlearn because it's the air that we breathe, like everywhere we look, not only are, are these messages reinforced, but we're often rewarded for them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're, I think it feeds into this idea that we can avoid suffering. Right. I mean, I think you talk about that. There's like this idea that, um, like Brene Brown says, you know, that it's a way of avoiding or minimizing the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Yeah. Which is terrifying for people, right? Like that's deep. Yeah. So it's a bypass in many ways. Like if I just hustle <laughs> for this unreachable, like impossible destination, I'm not going to actually have to sit with the reality of my humanness right. and my vulnerability, right? And my mistake I mean, I th making. I think we could match our books up almost like chapter I know. by chapter. I know. Because I, I wrote like this whole thing about embracing failure, like yeah. uh, failure as a practice, you know, like really consciously failing. And I think it's so... It's hard for me to even keep it in my mind because I just shift back to the perfectionism myself. Like it's just, totally. it's hard to, but I, I, I believe that, you know, that failure is the way we learn yes. and grow and evolve. And so is suffering. And so is illness, yeah. all those things and disabilities are all tools for our growth and they're positive, you could say, and they're all, but Challenge. And expansive, right? right. Like, I, like so the possibilities of expansion of like yes. what's beyond these really limited beliefs and these limited ways of being in the world is like endless. I mean, that was, that was a really right. hopeful thing that came out of this book for me is like, I felt like, you know, so much of it was an inquiry into like, how do I unlearn and unpack and detox, right? From all these fucked up things that I've learned from dominant culture and all the ways yeah. my body and my behavior has been shaped. But then by the end of the book, what I was actually reaching for is like, holy shit, there's so much more for me and for you and for all all of us beyond what we've inherited. There's more. Yes. Can I read more to you from yes. your own book? <laughs> so creepy, by the way. <laughs> Isn't it? I know. I, <laughs> I know. It's awesome though. Um, okay. This is 120. You say striving for perfection and validation in a toxic world is who we've become, but love is who we have always been. Whole is how we were born and being our authentic, messy and perfect selves is enough. Self-love self -love is how we call our power back and remember who we are and who we are to one another. I'm going to keep going. If it's okay. <laughs> it's reclaiming my wild and curious little girl self from the culture of Barbies and beauty standards. It is feeding my teenage body and soul the nourishment that it needed and deserved. It is letting myself off the hook from my parents' divorce and things that were beyond my control. It is giving myself permission to receive and rest and wishing that for my mom. It is forgiving myself for hurting myself and my desire to be seen and loved. 
It is knowing that I cannot see another's worthiness and wholeness unless I see it in myself. And it feels hard and impossible sometimes, but it is worth it. I am worth it. We are worth it. Mm, Thank you for reading that chapter. That's actually one of my favorite passages, particularly because of what I say about my mama. And, um, you know, I dedicated my book to her Mm. and, um, and her and I had work to do when I was writing this book also, because, you know, um, my mom and I are really, really close. She was young when she had me and, and we've just always been like extremely, Mm. extremely intimate and tight. And we've been growing together for a really, really long time. And, um, and a lot of the things I wrote about in this chapter and struggled with, she did, she has too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I couldn't, I couldn't separate my path. Right. Um, And the way in which I was shaped, my mom also grew up in the town that I grew up in. Right. Which was Mm. like a white suburban, you know, middle class um, town outside of New York City. And um, anyway, so it was really interesting to like and helpful for me also to see to to be in reflection about my own upbringing and how I was shaped and and what that meant about my own journey and, and how my mom's journey was really parallel to that and how it, it, it just really made me empathize and appreciate her so much. And Mm. every time I hear that line, like, um, and I wish that for my mom, like I I get really teary eyed because it's like, yeah, because I do. Yeah. It reminds me of the importance of ancestors and thinking about our lineage and and also about the future, like what we're leaving for the future generations, you know, yeah. about time, you know, and for me too, like I think a lot about that, my relationship with my my grandmother who taught me yoga or my mom or my children and like what is it that, what is my role, not just for myself, but directly in relationship to, to them. Um, I love that. And I love the way that um, people like Leila Saad and Stephanie Ghost and Paul talk about how we're ancestors now. Right. Right. And that that was a push for me because, you know, as an activist, it's really easy for me to default to like fight for everybody else and take care of everybody else and rage against the machine and or, or like repair the path, you know. And I had a really hard time doing the thing that you just named, which was like, yeah. I too am an ancestor. I'm a living ancestor. I have a responsibility. And part of that responsibility is actually loving myself or at least learning mm-hmm. how to. And that's really hard for me. This part, this, this part was was really hard for me because I was really trying to write what was true for me and self-love is a stretch for me. That's just true. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that you're honest about it and it felt very clear, you know, so I I think you're expressing it beautifully. It doesn't mean it's not hard. Um, Okay. I want to talk about wellness beyond whiteness. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, um, yeah. You said something. There's like, I can't possibly be racist. I meditate. You know, that was funny. <laughs> like, how, you know, I wonder if you could talk about that. I feel like, like your, my, one of my journey. editors told me to take that out. And I was like, I am not taking that out. People really believe that. Like, we've got to keep that in here. Um, oh, gosh. I mean, that's such an enormous question. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a student, right, of like, learning about white supremacy. I hate to say that because I'm like a white person benefiting from it, but I spent a lot of my life not seeing it, right? It was right. invisible to me. Yeah, and and so I, I just want to name that like so much of um, 
what I have come to know and what I have come to see and what I have come to learn about myself and reckon with is because of the fucking amazing people of color in my life, um, Mm -hmm. who have taught me and, or, or reflected back to me, right. Like mirrored back to me, like what I couldn't see. Um, and there's a lot of them mentioned in this chapter. Um, but yeah, shit, like, um, you know, I, I start off this chapter by writing about white saviorism because, you know, that was like one chapter in my, you know, unpacking, uh, mm. whiteness within myself. And I, you know, I did that thing where like, mm. you know, white people with good, good and in, well-intentioned white women go to Africa to like do a thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and to right. be of service, you know, and to make a difference and how that, um, how that just replicates a, a, an enormous and, and longstanding legacy, yeah. um, of Christian missionary work and philanthropy and, and just white people like going in and, and often like making the mess and then cleaning and thinking they can clean it up. Um, <laughs> but really white people just controlling other people and thinking they know what's best. Yeah. And, um, and, and I know that's not like a singular example. Like, you know, yeah. I just think about like the history of, imp- of American imperialism and how that's, and, and colonization and how that too is an expression, right. Um, of this idea of superiority and, and um and control and accumulation of wealth and resources that's a that's a part of the legacy of white supremacy and so um you know i try i try to like um um i tried to like tease out in this chapter what i've learned along the way about power mm-hmm. and how power is organized and who has it um, and, and how slippery it can be, especially when it's invisibilized and not exposed and acknowledged and confronted, yeah. but also the ways in which we, in our interactions with each, with each other and within the context of wellness, um, um, hold power over each other or give away our power, right. And how, you know, and how that too kind of feeds into the system, feeds into mm-hmm. the ideology of superiority and the idea that, you know, some people are valuable and some people aren't right. Some people are worthy of wellness and some people aren't. Um, right. so there was like a, t- this, this is a big chunky, like deep chapter. And there's a lot, there's a lot of grappling in here. Um, at least from my, my experience and my, you know, my unlearning. Right. And it seems, I mean, it's, it's amazing that how you corrected, connected to wellness, this idea that, because I think a lot of people in the quote wellness world think that they're beyond whiteness, which I think is uh, such a lie. And I feel like that's what you're trying to address here. It's just like the insidious nature of white supremacy and the way that um, white people continue to uphold it and the systems that we've created in wellness, whether it's yoga, you know, Western yoga schools or, um, other, you know, goop or whatever that is. Um, it's just, it's just systems that keep whiteness going and keep Absolutely. control, like maintain Absolutely. power, maintain power. Yeah. And, th- and that was one of the things I feel like that was like one of the really big ahas for me as in my own journey of like understanding how I've internalized whiteness and, and my part, you know, in, in that system is that, you know, when I'm, when I'm either not paying attention or when I forget, right. When I forget who we are, (laughs) right. Um, um, it's because I, I'm attached to control. Mm 
I'm attached to controlling the outcome. I'm attached to controlling the circumstances. I'm attached to being in control, right? And what a privilege that is, right? Um, but but how how much of that actually plays out yeah. in the wellness space, right? That's often like, oh, you're taking initiative and thanks for like running the meeting and thanks for, you know, like paying for the studio or like all these ways that we mask, you know, our, uh, our, you know, desire to maintain control, to maintain power yeah. over other, to police people's bodies, right. And control the room, right. Um, how we do that in really, um, insidious and, and, you know, often invisible ways when in fact, it's just a manifestation of white supremacy, of maintaining white supremacy, of keeping things yeah. as they are. Um, and, and I don't understand how anyone can say wellness is in white. I mean, like look around people. Yeah. And I know you've worked so much with Michelle, uh, Michelle Cassandra Donson and I, you know, I, and I'm just, you know, I have also learned so much from her and I appreciate the way the two of you collaborate often. And, I love the way she talks about breath and controlling her own breath and her body. And I feel like that's, it's a, it's a great way. And I think for people in the yoga world to understand this concept is through her work in particular, because yeah. so I just want to mention her yeah. name and, you know, I think that's relating it directly to yoga, the way we teach as like a very top down, it's very mm -hmm. controlling. And it's so often the white person as the teacher um, or a system that, you know, in the West that white people have created. So I feel like um, you model this so beautifully, by the way, and how you teach and you really give people the room. Hmm. Like you give, you, you know what I mean? Like you give the power back. You're like, yeah, no, no. Like <laughs> this is your practice. <laughs> Do it. with it what you will, right. Take up the space <laughs> that you need, grab yeah. the props that, that are appropriate and, and that, you know, um, allow for your greatest expression. And I just like, I really appreciate how you're really dismantling that structure and how, and the mm. culture that you're creating around, um, accessible, you know, yoga practice. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, and more people need to like learn how to do that. And also like, just really be questioning, like, what are the ways in which I'm in the way? Mm -hmm. Right. Given my social location, given my racial location, what are, what are the ways in which yeah. I'm in the way of another person's wellness or I'm in the way of them realizing their own wellness on their terms? And I feel like if we, if we can be in constant, you know, interrogation about that as leaders of wellness or as people with, you know, uh, power or influence in wellness, you know, that's helpful. That's like a helpful, um, you know, yeah. practice, right. To keep us accountable, quite frankly, and to keep yeah. us curious, right. That like, there is no one way to be well. No. And, and you can't possibly know what, what, what someone else with a different lived experience might need. And so if you're not curious and you're not asking questions and you're not questioning yourself, you're not doing a very good job teaching yoga. Right. And I would say that yoga is to me is all about power, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what yoga is for. Yoga is about finding an internal source of power, you know, internal yes. source rather than being focused externally. Um, that's yes. what the teachings teach us, right? That we all have that within us. And so to me, it's, it's not yoga if it's not dedicated to that, to that yes. internal reconnection with, for each individual, not through the teacher, but individually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That we have what we need, right? We have the power within us. And, yeah. and I feel like that's really helpful because it, it gives us, um, um, 
I think it makes it more possible for us then to see more clearly the, um, the really unequal systems of power externally that we're a part of, right? The social and institutional power, the way power is organized for some and against others, right? If we can center ourselves in like personal power, we can, I think, more skillfully navigate that and also do whatever we need to do to transform it. Exactly. And redistribute power, which is the point, you know, of that chapter. And I think that's what you're getting to. I also feel very connected to that idea that is the heart of my work too. Like whether it's disability or race or whatever it is, it, it's not for me to be outside of you telling you how to fix or heal mm-hmm. or do this thing. It's about each individual finding their their path. But like, you know, what I think is so interesting in, the, in your book is that you basically analyze it systemically. Like you look at this in a much broader way than I was able to, you know, like I come at much, much more philosophically, uh, in my work, but I just yeah, love your, love. but like your social, not just social, but your like political and social understanding. I don't know what the word is. I, I can't find the word, but there's something about your kind of overarching perspective that I find really refreshing. And I think this book is powerful in that way. I hope a lot of white people read this book. Me too. <laughs> I mean, I, I would imagine that this book is for people like me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who are yeah. kind of like, you know, either trying to like find their place in this work or be accountable in this work or, you know, transform themselves and the people around them. I mean, that's, um, that's, yeah. that's who I wrote it for, you know, it's not for everyone, yeah. you know, but I do think, and I, and I was very deliberate about bridging the personal and the political to your point, because, mm-hmm. um, that was a gap I was seeing. I was like, Oh, like this, like, like how do we actually, so that, so that was sort of like when I was like, what yeah. is mine to write? And what is the thing that's needed? I was like, Oh, yeah. I want to write a book that helps bridge like the, the personal practice with the political practice. So people can see that the personal is political, right. And that the political is personal and so yeah. on and so forth. And that wellness, right. Is deeply political, whether we like it or not. And so our practice exactly. has to include that. Yes. Oof, awesome. Mm. That's awesome. I think you summed it all up right there. So I don't know. If, you know <laughs> At the end of the day, share. get political. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, wellness is political. Yeah. And so yeah. I love that. I love that clarity. You know, anyway, I hope people read the book. Me too. Thanks for being here with me and talking about it. Oh my and, gosh. I'm uh, so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful for, for the contribution that you're making to the ecosystem mm, and what I'm learning thanks. from you. And, you know, I'm just like appreciating so much, all of the wisdom, the collective wisdom that's rising up right now. And it's amazing. So, you know, while the world is shit, like also <laughs> in addition, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, things are happening. Things are also shifting and changing and people are waking up and getting organized. And so I think we have to hold that those things are happening simultaneously and stand in the middle of that, you know, and move forward yeah. together. And here's to more organizing. Hell to the to yes. Yes. More First organizing. and foremost, I think I'm an organizer and that's, I you know, know that's the thing I want people to do. <laughs> I know that's what we have in common. Yeah. That's the last thing I write about in this book in the last yeah. chapter. I'm like, just organize y'all, you know, <laughs> organize yourselves around your values, organize yourselves around collective care, organizing yourselves around each other, please. Yeah, so I'm, I'll follow. Just organize. Okay. <laughs> Same here. All right. Thank you. Thanks Even so thank much, you Mary. so much. Thanks for being here. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Grateful. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us for the Accessible Yoga Podcast. We're so grateful to be in community with you. Please check out our website, accessibleyoga.org, to find out more about our upcoming programs, including our annual Accessible Yoga Conference. At our website, you can also learn more about how to become an Accessible Yoga Ambassador and support the work that we are doing in the world. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can also submit a question or suggest a topic or potential guest you'd like us to interview at accessibleyoga.org. See you next time.